Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the founder and editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. Today, I'm very happy to say we're talking to George Drake, Emeritus President of Grinnell College. George graduated from Grinnell in 1956 and then became president of Grinnell in 1979, and he held the reins until 1991. In addition to being Grinnell's president, George is also a historian with years of college teaching under his belt, and we'll talk about that in the course of the interview, and we'll also be mentioning his memoir, 70 Years in Academe. Welcome to the show, George. Nice to be here, Marshall. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm not sure we met when I was at Grinnell. I I got there about the same time you did, and you got there in 1979. I got there in 1980. Well, we would have have laid eyes on each other. (laughs) I think that's right. I think laid eyes is exactly right. Um, So you open 70 years in academia by saying that you read Jonathan Zimmerman's book, the Amateur Hour, which is essentially a history of college teaching in the United States. We've actually had Jonathan on the New Books Network. And can you tell us a little bit about how reading Zimmerman's book prompted your reflection and then prompted you to write 70 Years in Academia? Well, um, yes. Uh, in the first place, that's a sort of a piquant title, the amateur hour describing college teaching, but I think um, Jonathan Zimmerman's right on. Uh, those of us who become college teachers usually receive very, very little, if any, training in graduate school about teaching. It's it's virtually all about scholarship. Uh, that may have changed since my time in graduate school in the 1960s, but according to Zimmerman, not very much. No, it hasn't changed. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, and reading that book, which I found fascinating, and I certainly would be glad to give a plug for the book because anyone who's interested in colleges and college teaching would gain a lot from it. Um, I realized that I had either seen or tried most of the technique that he lays out. And he, of course, gives a lot of emphasis on personality involved with teaching. And I think that's been true in my observation as well. You know, over time, some people, not a lot, have suggested that I write a memoir, and I hadn't been inspired to do that. But after reading the Zimmerman book, I was was inspired to do it, so I did it. Um, it, It's far from a complete um, coverage of, of all of my academic experience, but that would be extremely boring to do it that way. <laughs> I of highlights of it. From, but, but the book begins with my undergraduate years at Grinnell. By the way, 70 years is a bit of a fudge. It's 69 plus if, if you uh, try to figure we, it out. We will allow, we will allow you that. Um, let's actually okay. get into your years at Grinnell. And my first question is, Grinnell is kind of an out-of-the-way place. And I'm always interested to tell people how I got to Grinnell, which was by a completely strange connection. How did you get to Grinnell? Why did you choose to go to Grinnell? Well, first of all, I was interested in small liberal arts colleges. I I did not seriously contemplate going to a major university, though I uh, was a runner and a successful 
high school athlete. I had the half fastest time in the half mile in Illinois, my oh. graduate year. And our team won the state championship, and I was second in the half mile, beaten by a guy I'd beaten twice before. Uh-huh. Anyway, so I was recruited by, I think, Northwestern, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, as a runner. But I, I, I actually made some visits because I was curious about it, but I never had much of an intention of going to one of those major institutions, partly because I questioned whether I was of that caliber as a runner, but mostly I just wanted to go to a liberal arts college. My dad had been president of a small liberal arts college in Nebraska called Dome. And so it was founded by the um, Congregational Church as was Grinnell and as as was Carleton. Those were the two colleges he recommended to me, and and my high school counselors also recommended them to me. They didn't recommend any Ivy League or East Coast schools. They didn't think I was up to that kind of competition. I I was not a what you'd call an outstanding high school student. I tested pretty well, but I didn't do much work in high school. Um, So anyway, um, it came down, actually, three colleges, Beloit, Carlton and Grinnell were the ones I was looking at and visited all three. Grinnell and Carlton had a thing called a Baker Scholarship, which was a nationally endowed scholarship, uh, which had competition on campus. You came to campus, took a batter of exams, were interviewed by one faculty member and one administrator. I did, did went through that at both Carlton and Grinnell. I have to say, I felt a little more comfortable at Grinnell. When I, when I visited Carleton, they talked Grinnell down. They said, you don't want to go there. <laughs> there. Uh, right through the middle of campus. Uh, whereas the Grinnell folks, when I'd mentioned Carleton, they said, oh, that's a good school. I can understand why you're interested in So I like that attitude better. Anyway, um, I got offered the Baker Scholarship from Grinnell take it or leave it with a few days to decide. And I decided to take it. Then I got a call from Carlton, maybe a week later saying, had I accepted a Baker from another institution? And I said, yes. And they said that we can't offer you one. So it was p- partly a matter of timing, but I think partly uh, Grinnell was the right choice for me. There's no question about it uh, uh, in yeah. terms of the feel of the campus and so on. Uh, it was for me too. I, I didn't know it at the time, and I won't go into the details. But I'm very glad that I elected to go there. I, I'm very interested in hearing about, and you talk about this in the book, undergraduate teaching at Grinnell when you went there. This is between 1952 and 1956, and how it is different than the teaching you did later. What what was teaching like at Grinnell? Well, in in the first place, this is all just on the cusp of the paperback revolution, so. Most of the reading was textbook reading. Hmm. Uh, there, by, by my senior year, we were beginning to get assigned paperbacks, uh, so shorter and, and more varied reading as time unfolded. Most, most of the teaching was by lecture. Uh, the faculty had heavier teaching loads than they have today by a considerable margin. Um, we, we did write papers, but mostly it was term papers, not sh- not short papers as we do today. For example, in my tutorial, which I taught up until a couple of years ago, uh, I had six one-page paper assignments. 
So multiple assignments, much shorter, much more focused on deconstructing the writing of the student and, and you know, f- almost sentence by sentence, word by word kind of analysis that you can do when you have just a single pa- page in front of you. Whereas when I was a student and it, that, that, that was aided by the fact that we had Christmas break and then had another two to three weeks of the semester when we got back. So you could do some research and writing during the Christmas vacation and mm-hmm. the process of signing a 20 to 25 page paper. So there were uh, less reading, ultimately less writing, but when you wrote, it was usually a lot longer paper, mostly lectures, though um, I describe in the book one particular professor, John Kleinschmidt, who taught according to a kind of Socratic um, discussion method. And uh, I don't know, I guess it's worth repeating the, the story. The one course in high school that I worked hard at, really hard at, just to survive, and I got a C in the class for, for two years, <laughs> French. But when I got Grinnell, it turned out my high school French was the equivalent of college French because I crawled out of the first two years of French. So I was able to take take a lot, lot of French uh, literature courses, which I did do as, as, as a freshman in with juniors and seniors. So that was a heady experience. And this was actually my freshman year in a French drama class with John Kleinschmidt and We'd had an exam and we came into the class ready for the exam to be handed out. And Professor Kleinschmidt said, Mr. Drake, why did you write such insulting comments at the end of your exam? And I'm just dumbfounded. I said, Professor Kleinschmidt, I didn't write anything of that type. And he said, now you're compounding the felony by lying to me. It seemed to me interminably, it was probably about one to two minutes, but it seemed like five to 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, John stops and he says, what was dramatic about that? So that was the way he launched us into mm. a discussion of the nature of drama. Uh, that was John Kleinsmith. So that's, that's at least as interactive as any teaching that's going on at Grinnell now. So it wasn't all lecture discussion, but of course, the great master of the lecture discussion was a professor named Joe Wall. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about Joe Wall because you go on at some length about Joe in the book. Well, Joe was remarkable. He, a great historian in his own right and Bancroft prize winner for his own writing um, and a master teacher. He could create an atmosphere in the, in the, in the classroom narrative with discussion interspersed with the narrative and it's just totally engaging partly because there was a great moral force at work it wasn't just an intellect at work but a a great moral force and he he didn't ram his morality down our throats but it was evident where where he stood and he invited us to challenge that morality but i would say the great um uh, genius of Joe was narrative. He, he could just weave a narrative in class that was just spellbinding. Well, it sounds wonderful. So let's move you past Grinnell. You graduate in 56, and then you got a Fulbright to go to Paris. And then if I understand correctly, you didn't get a Rhodes Scholarship, and then you did. 
<laughs> well, that's that's an interesting, if not peculiar, story. Uh, the way the roads was decided in those days, and for many years thereafter, there were different regions in the country, and six states would be a part of each region. We were the Midwest region, and there would be two candidates from every state that, that would survive a state competition and then come together in one location, all 12 of those candidates, two per state, six states. Um, in, in this case, it was in Des Moines at the Bankers Life Building. And uh, it's a very interesting and um, tense process because you're all interviewed. You come the night before and have a social uh, interaction over dinner. And they, of course, the committee is there judging you during the dinner, uh, whether you can hold your fork right or whatever, whatever they're looking at. And then you have these interviews the next day, each interview probably a half hour to 40 minutes. And then at the end of the day, you all come together and it's you, you, and you, and you are the Rhodes Scholars. Four, four of the 12 will be selected. I was not one of them. Uh, riding down the elevator with the secretary of the committee, he leaned over to me and he said, Mr. Drake, you might try again. And next time, be a little more self-confident. Um, well, that that told me that the, the committee had taken a long time, and actually they'd taken a long time over their fourth choice. A man named Truman Schwartz from uh, McAllister, myself, and Truman, Truman got we, we got to know each other quite well at Oxford after that because we were in the same college. So I went to Paris, got, took a, got a Fulbright and went to Paris. And then I get a letter, uh, excuse me, a telegram from this committee member asking me if I was going to apply for the roads again. And my response to him was, yes, I would be glad to apply and I could just reactivate my material. But I couldn't, you know, this is 1955 and uh, getting home would be expensive and slow by boat. And so I said, I just can't come for the interview. So I thought that's that. Um, they'll have me in the pool, but I won't get the rose. Well, without getting the interview, I got the rose. And, <laughs> and, and the other three, got at that time, thought I was some sort of God who could not even have to show up for the interview to, to get the scholarship. So it was just probably a strange an appointment to the Rhodes Scholarship, as, as I'm aware of. Uh, but probably some strange other strange ones as well, but um, so that's how I got it on myself. That, that must have been a good day when you got the telegram explaining you got a Rhodes and didn't have to interview. <laughs> now, in fact, I hadn't even told my parents that I was reapplying. They read it in the paper. Yeah, the <laughs> did they really? Wow. So then you go on to Oxford. Um, what was it like being an American Midwesterner in Oxford in the 1950s? Well, a, a little overwhelming. Um was, was Oxford, I had a romantic view of Oxford and that uh, romantic view turned out to be reaffirmed by being there because it is truly a medieval university uh -huh. and, and, it, and it's structured its buildings and so on. And you might say maybe in some of the ways it approaches education. Um, it, it was 
overwhelming in some ways because uh, British undergraduate life, at least at a place like the, the Cambridge and, and Oxford, is um, different from the U.S. For example, uh, in in the U.S. and you would you would uh, I think recognize this, Marshall. Um, you can be as smart and get good grades as you want. And no one's going to put you down. But if you talk like that, if you show off your intelligence in dorm conversations and so on, that's not going to be very popular at Grinnell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, so you can, your, your academic, at least in my day, certainly your academic life and your social life were quite a bit separated. Whereas in Britain, the British undergraduates never do any work. They never admit to doing any work. They're just naturally brilliant. So in conversation, we Americans are overwhelmed by the brilliance of the conversation. We're not used to that kind of informal conversation. Uh, But as you know, you can complain all you want at Grinnell about how much studying you're doing and and how much how much work you're putting into your courses? That's fine. Just don't show the results of that of that study. Yeah, They're very prominently. I think students are a little better today in talking about serious matters, but they certainly weren't in the, in the 1950s. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yes, when I was at Grinnell, all we could talk about was how much we had to study. But yeah. then when we were studying, we didn't have, well, we did sometimes have serious discussions. So then a- after uh, Oxford, you go on to get a PhD at the University of Chicago, 1959. And one of the things that stands out to me as somebody who also got a PhD is that you got it apparently in five years. It took me eight. <laughs> well, of course, I had a a year of, of work in Paris where I was working sort of on my own on French Protestant history. And then at Oxford, you do a single subject. So you, you're going to graduate with another Bachelor of Arts degree, which, by the way, you can convert to a Master of Arts degree if you pay fees for five years and show you're interested enough in the university to become a Master of the University. Mm-hmm. So I do have a, a purchased MA from, from Oxford, <laughs> top of my BA. Uh, uh, so I did the single subject, modern history, which is really British history, and uh, a special subject um, was some research on Oliver Cromwell and his period in the Commonwealth and Protectorate. So, so every every one of those courses had a special subject with it so you could do something akin to research and so with that background coming back actually I entered divinity school and uh, got got my divinity degree which in those days was a master a bachelor of divinity and they give a master's of divinity these days Um, and then went on for the PhD now here's here's where the Chicago system is different um, at Oxford, for example, virtually nothing changed during my two years there and in many years afterwards with respect to the curriculum. At Chicago, anything that was in print about the curriculum was probably out of date. <laughs> Chicago was a cutting edge kind of place. And 
you were uh, assessed according to your examination results, not the passage of courses. So you could cut out courses if you had some background and could work it up on your own, just as long as you could pass the exams. And that's part of the reason why I was able to move it along, particularly after I got my divinity degree and got into the graduate work. The graduate work I'd had previously, the three years previous to arriving, arriving in Chicago, came into play at that point. And then did church, did church history. So Yeah. And, and then you go on, and this was fascinating to me as somebody who got a PhD and went out on the job market and went to the AHA a lot for many years. Uh, you got your first job, which was at Colorado College. Maybe you could tell the story of how you got that job because it's so different yeah. than the way jobs are distributed today. I, I have to back up. Okay. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a very fortunate generation. Born in the sort of the middle of the tail end of the Depression, 1934. The, 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 the impact of the Depression on families was severe at that time. And people were not having as many children. They could not afford children, uh, or very many children. So my generation was always a uh, so the so-called uh, depression generation. Not as many of us as in other generations. We were a sparse generation with respect to population. And so that opened up a lot of doors for me, um, getting into Grinnell, uh, with a major scholarship, with a not a, well, I, I was I graduated 79th in my high school class. <laughs> I managed to graduate first in my co college class, so I did become a student while at, while at Grinnell. Um, so when I got out of graduate school, the baby boomers are beginning to arrive. Uh, the the uh, this is 1964, so the demographics of college attendance is going up and there are fewer people looking for jobs. So the, I, it was possible for me to, to do what I did and actually get a job. We, uh, my wife and I, the, the, uh, back up, the only um, pastoral job I ever had was a summer church in a little teeny community called Marble, Colorado, high up in the Colorado Rockies, town about, located at about 8,000 feet. And I did that for two summers. And the first summer, we bought a little bit of land, didn't cost very much. Uh, and then the second summer, we started on our own building this cabin. And we had people around us who knew about buildings so we could ask questions. Uh, actually, uh, I, I'd spent the previous year at, at Grinnell as a sabbatical replacement. This is during my graduate work. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Ed Bowers, who was a football coach, was from a construction family. And so I had him sitting in Darby Gym for two hours, giving me, giving me the basics <laughs> about building something like a cabin. Anyway, the second summer, Sue and I got that cabin framed in. And on the way back from uh, Marble to Chicago, where I was a graduate student, we stopped. I, I had... Note, written to Colorado College to the to the president of Colorado College, who was a fortunately for me a very open-minded person, 
and I said I was introduced myself and as a Rhodes Scholar and said I was very interested in teaching at Colorado College, a place like Grinnell, but in the Rocky Mountain, in the base of the Rocky Mountains. So we stopped off at CC on the way back to Chicago and I met the president and a member of the history department. And uh, later, uh, quite a bit later, several months later, received an appointment at Colorado College to be director of their freshman honors program called the Selected Student Program. Uh, as I point out in the book, I didn't wasn't savvy enough to recognize there was no departmental appointment attached to that. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I assumed I was in the history department, but when I got to CC the following fall, I found out that I wasn't in the history department. I had a little bit of work to do to ingratiate myself with my history colleagues, which fortunately I was able to do. So um, that's how I ended up at Colorado that's a, College. That's different than it's done today. Um, well, one of the things I found fascinating in the book, and I'd forgotten this because I knew people that went to CC, is that um, they have a different method of teaching than a place like Grinnell. They use the block plan, and that actually came about while you were there. Maybe you could describe the block plan, what it is, and how it came about at CC, and whether you like yeah. it or not. <laughs> well, yeah. um, I have to back up a little bit. After I'd been at the college only three years as an assistant professor, but by this time an assistant professor of history, as well as running the selected student program, um, after I'd been there that amount of time, the dean contracted cancer. And the president asked me if I would be willing to be the active dean for a year, acting dean for a year while the, 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 the real dean struggled with his cancer. And I said, yes. So, I mean, I was a little older than someone recently appointed to a college. I, do, I didn't get a full-time job till I was 30 years old. I spent so much time in graduate school. Um, so what, 33 years old, assistant professor, untenured, I'm acting as the dean for a year. Then it turns <laughs> out that the dean did not sufficiently recover to resume the job. So I became the dean for six became the dean for six years. And that was during the time that Colorado College was shifted to the to the block plan. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the the uh, the president sort of initiated the process saying we're going to enter our second 100 years we should actively review our curriculum and see if we would not might not do it with some change some major changes and so a political scientist of real genius a man named glenn brooks was appointed as special assistant to the president and his job was to investigate and come up with ideas about how the college might enter its second 100 years with something new and refresh, refreshing. And Glenn did this exactly the right. He talked right way. He talked to person after person, talked with faculty, talked with staff, talked to the administrative assistants, talked to the, to the athletic department and so on. And there was a psychologist at CCMN called Don Shearn, who had the germ of the ID said to Glenn, you give me my 25 students for one month, one month ex exclusively, and I'll show you what education really is. And that mm -hmm. was the, 
birth of the idea of the, of the black plan. My role as dean was, uh, first of all, to get on board, and I definitely was on board. I was excited by the prospect. And then from an administrative point of view, to help it along as, as well as possible. But the idea was not mine. The driving force behind it, behind it was not me. It was, it was Glenn Brooks. The president had exactly the right attitude. He said, anything that is educationally valid, we will make administratively possible. Mm. So yeah, you had a very open and, and encouraging point of view from the president, which was absolutely key. So anyway, that's how the one course at a time block plan came about. I would say the only original contribution I made was during one committee session, the, the committee that was focusing on this uh, the question was, how are you, how are you going to get from one course to the next over a weekend? Wind, as we know, <laughs> you wind up, winding up one course and starting the next is the most stressful part of, of teaching. And just not enough time over a weekend. So I said, what's magical about this being the course being four weeks? Let's make it three and a half weeks and have a thing called a block break from Wednesday noon and, and until the following Monday to give the faculty a little bit of breathing space. So that's that's how the block break came about, made lots of sense out in Colorado at the base of Pikes Peak. Kids could go skiing in the winter, yep. hiking, and, and, and so they didn't, because the CC students come from all over, most, most, many of them, if not most, had a hard time getting home in just for a short time. So I've always wondered about Cornell here in Iowa, which picked up on the, the block plan mm-hmm. from CC, mm-hmm. and uh, what what how what they make of the block break in Iowa it isn't quite as good a location for the block plaque break as as Colorado College. No, but anyway, uh, it started in, in 1970, and uh, you know all kinds of logistical problems. Each class each class had its own room, because so you are not tied to a, to an hourly schedule. So how to find enough rooms on campus? They were using fraternity and sorority lounges, almost any available space in order to uh, find enough classroom space, things like that. Registration, registration is going to be a lot different. And uh, so Glenn got cadres of students together, faculty will put together a, a, a schedule and then the students would practice registering. Um, one of the things that came out immediately was most of the introductory work was early in the year and more advanced courses later in the year that had to be reshuffled, things like that, that had to be, you know, tried before you actually got into the block plan itself. So it was quite innovative, quite exciting. And I enjoyed teaching under it. Teaching is a little bit different. You can't sign long papers. Um, getting reading assignments. Imagine trying to teach Victorian literature in three and a half weeks. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot of adjustments had to be made. Well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, and, and as I say, I don't know a lot about the block band, so thank you for describing it for us. So then in, to move forward, in, in 1970, you become a trustee member on the Board of Trustees at Grinnell. And then in 1979, you were appointed president. How did that come about? <laughs> I was demoted. Yeah, you really were. <laughs> hey, 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 Bob, um, who was 
chair of the trustees at that time said, now, George, remember you're working for us. Yeah. So I moved from being a colleague to being an employee. Um, well, I was on the board because of my academic experience, not because I was going to be a major financial contributor to the college. Um, and I, I was surprised when Dick Turner resigned, when several board members approached me and said, well, was I ready? Because I had been mostly a mouth in, in trustee meetings, and I had not been the most faithful attender at trustee meetings. I made most of the meetings, but I did miss some. So I was surprised that, that some of my colleagues saw me in, in, that, in that light. Anyway, um, Soon after that, I got a call from Bob Noyce, who was chairing the search committee. And he said, George, I have two questions. Don't answer the first until you answer the second. The first question was, would I be willing to be on the search committee? And the second question was, would I be willing to be a candidate? And I thought for just a minute or so, and I said, well, I'll put it this way, Bob, don't put me on the search committee. <laughs> so. That, that's how I became a candidate, and uh, turned out I was a successful candidate. I think, think, think there were three of us invited to campus, and um, of course, in some ways, I had an advantage over the others because I'd been tracking the college very closely from my uh, position on the board of trustees. When I got the job, as probably as a, probably this is a good thing, I was not um, ecstatic. Because, because I had a pretty good idea what faced me and, and whether I could survive, what faced me was another question. Yeah, yeah. I could not turn, not, nah, excuse me, I'm getting hiccups. I, I could not t turn down the opportunity to be president of my, of my college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I accepted it uh, with alacrity and with hopefulness, but not with ecstasy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it must have been quite a transition from, you know, you were a dean at the time, but still running a college. That's a big job. Um, I talked to Ann Harris the other day, and it's a very serious undertaking being a college president. <laughs> and in fact, I had already resigned from the deanship of Colorado College because I wanted to teach full time on yeah. the block plan. So I've been teaching full time for several years. So actually, my appointment came to Grinnell, coming to Grinnell was from a faculty position. Uh-huh. I see. I see. So uh, now we're getting into my time because uh, you arrived in 79 and I arrived in 1980. And you mentioned a couple of cases, one of which uh, happened when I was there in 1981. And I was absolutely fascinated to learn that at the time when you arrived, and I may get this wrong, there was a, I believe the way you put it is a tenure quota. That is only a certain percentage of professors in departments could be tenured and i believe the figure was 60 percent that all the the, the other was, lines is that right 60 percent well 66 two-thirds for the full faculty okay no yeah. no 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 department was to be fully tenured yeah well no single department yeah mm -hmm. and, and then there were some tough cases in 1981 one of which i remember a philosophy professor i won't mention any names but i do remember that it caused a huge hubbub on campus among people that I knew. I had just arrived. I didn't know anything about it, but it was, it was controversial. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how that tenure quota changed? Well, as a trustee, I had voted against the tenure quota policy. This is an uh, initiative of Dick Turner coming from Middlebury, and I think they, Middlebury had a tenure quota policy. Um, Grinnell was not overly tenured at the time, but that's all obviously a fear because if you get something like 85 or 90 percent of the faculty tenured, you're not going to get much new blood, and you've got a heavy financial commit commitment to people who are associate and full professors who are being paid a lot more than yeah. assistant professors just coming in. So there's reason for it. But from my attitude was that in a small college community, this could be absolutely corrosive. Uh, it, it's People are so much closer to each other on the faculty than they are in a major institution where there's so many faculty members. And to have to make these decisions in a somewhat arbitrary way. In other words, we're bumping up against the tenure quota and so no one can be tenured or very few can be tenured. Actually, the first decision that was made was an exception to the policy. There were four people in physics and a young physicist who was as good as anybody in the department, if not better, uh, who came up for tenure and they tenured him. Mm -hmm. So immediately there was a physics department was totally tenured. So I was, when I was appointed president, I had a list of about a dozen things that I wanted for sure to do. One was to bring Joe Wall back. One was to save Mears Cottage. One was to overturn the uh, tenure quota policy. So early on in my meeting with the trustees, I proposed overturning it. And we had a long discussion and finally they agreed to overturn it. Um, and there, uh, rebuttal to me was, George, how can we be sure we won't get over tenured? I said, you're going to have to trust the mm. faculty and the administration to make these decisions. Now, the problem up till then was that the tenure this decision was not made until the fifth or sixth year. Uh, you can't enter your seventh year without being tenured if you're in a full-time appointment. So uh, you, the, the decision point comes after this person's been at the college quite a while. And uh, a number of us recognize that that's too late to make the, the initial crack at, at tenure. So a third year review was instituted. Now, I have to back up. Uh, you refer to the philosophy professor, one philosophy professor and one uh, anthropology professor mm -hmm. came up to the administration with mixed votes. That yep. is to say they were not unanimously approved for tenure, but they were approved by the faculty for tenure. And so the dean, Catherine Fraser, and I decided that we would overturn that, both of those uh, cases. And as you, as you pointed out, all hell broke loose. I remember running one afternoon and a student stopped me and said, you better get over to the forum. The students are talking about firing you. <laughs> and, uh, so it was quite, quite a crisis year, but far, ever after that, we've had this instituted third year review where people who are 
in a shaky position, it's a lot easier to let them go after three years than after five or six years when your kids have gotten to know each other, you're, yeah. you've socialized together and so on. So it's worked much better since then. Mm-hmm. So there's another case that you talked about. I was gone from Grinnell in 1989, which I found fascinating. And if I recall the incident correctly, that is from reading the book, uh, a first year student asked if she could move off campus to live with her partner. And the issue was that the partner wasn't a student. And so there must have been some policy against that. And then the other issue was these two folks happened to be women. And th- this all got very complicated. <laughs> I didn't ever really understand the policy toward married students when I was at Cornell. I never understood it. But maybe you could talk well, about it. <laughs> uh, they, they were going to get married. And yeah. uh, if, if we had approved that, we would have been the first institution in Iowa. I would say. Yeah, that that was part of it. But the real issue was, as you would know, a lot of heterosexual students wanted to move off campus and live together. Yeah. And we thought this would if we allowed that, it would just open up that floodgate. So it was related to the whole issue of, of marriage policy. Now, I'll back up and say that one of the good things about Grinnell is that we have an obligation to live in the dormitories the first two years. Uh, And the only way at that time you could get out of that was if you were married. Mm -hmm. And we have a non-discrimination clause prominently featured in our catalog. We did not uh, discriminate according to gender or affection. There's a lot of verbiage there. And so we were hoist on on uh, our own petard because it didn't distinguish between heterosexual marriage and homosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. And so the way the, the deans were adamantly opposed to allowing the same sex marriage and the students who were the first year yeah. able to move off. If, if they'd been both been students, we'd say room together. We don't care under what circumstances you're rooming together, but this was not possible because this was a non-student. So all hell broke loose. The TV cameras were over from Des Moines, students pounding on the walls of Nolan House mm-hmm. and so on. Me out there trying to explain what we were doing to, to the TV cameras. But what we, what we did was withdraw the privilege of moving off campus in the first two years, even if you were married. Mm-hmm. And one of our best basketball players had already been approved to move off campus to get married. And he was a second year and we rescinded that. I felt very badly about it, but we had to be consistent. He left school mm. uh, in order to get married. So that was the, that was the issue. It was, it was called a housing issue, but yeah. it was really. Uh, I, I remember when I was there that there was on a floor where I lived, there was a married couple that lived in the dormitory in Cowles. I, I, am I remembering correctly? You, if you were married, you could live together in the dorms. Is I guess right? you're right. I, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it very well because there was a couple, and they were very nice, and they lived a couple doors down from me. And they were married, and they lived in the dorms, and uh, I never really thought anything about it. But once again, Grinnell College on the cutting edge. So we've taken up a lot of your time. I, I don't want to neglect what you did after you stepped down um, in 1991, but could you briefly tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since then? That's a lot of time, but... 
Well, when I stepped down from the presidency in 1991, my wife Sue and I joined the Peace Corps, and we were in a small southern African country called Lesotho. Mm-hmm. We were both teachers. Sue, who had a background as an elementary school teacher, went out to six. Well, one was was located where we lived, up in the mountains of Lesotho, and then she went out to five other schools, sometimes riding horseback, working with the teachers. She was a, a resource teacher for for the Basutu uh, teachers. I, on the other hand, walked about 200 meters to a classroom where I was an English teacher on, on the campus. With, it was a high school, gir- girls' high school. And so I taught English to, for two years to uh, these Basutu girls, which was a very interesting experience. Then we returned to Grinnell, and I, I, when I became president, I bargained about one thing. I didn't bargain about salary. I figured they'd pay me fairly, but I bargained to get tenure in the history department. Now, my naivety was that I could assume that tenure almost under any circumstances. Fortunately, my presidency had been successful enough that the history department welcomed me. If I'd had a unsuccessful presidency, it might have been a little harder to make that transition to the history department. And my history colleagues were extremely generous in helping me to assemble a teaching load. I was an extra hand for the department. So Don Smith, who taught British history. I remember Don Smith very well. Wonderful and wonderful teacher. Don preferred the second half of that class, which began after 1660, and I preferred the first half of British history, so we divided that. And then Marcy Sauter, who taught early modern European history, helped me share her load. So, And then I, I came back prepared to start a course on Southern Africa, uh, which I did, which was a successful course. So uh, with tutorial, the Southern Africa course in the British history and a little bit of modern European history, why managed to assemble a good good teaching load and I taught for 10 years full time and then assumed senior faculty status and then retirement but kept on teaching the tutorial which I regard as the most important course in the Grinnell curriculum until age 85 which was a couple of years ago when Everything went online because of the pandemic. Right. I pulled out because I can't imagine teaching the tutorial, which is an introduction to the college experience online, and I would be terrible at doing it online. It's, so it's it's good you mentioned the tutorial because uh, when I came to Grinnell in 1980, I was very lucky to be given a tutorial with Dan Kaiser. And oh, Dan yeah. Kaiser, as you know, is a Russian historian. And I became a Russian historian, largely because of that tutorial. <laughs> and, and I feel I know you because Dan talks about you a lot. Yeah, so. well, Dan has been my mentor for decades now. And uh, I always think to myself, what would Dan do whenever I have to make a decision? So that, that freshman tutorial is really very significant part of every Grinnell experience. I know mine was truly, it really changed my life. So, George, as I say, you've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, let me tell everybody that I've been listening to the Grinnell College Authors and Artists podcast. We've been talking to George Drake, who's the emeritus president of the college and a longtime teacher at the college. George, thank you for being on the show. 
Well, it, it's been very pleasant, Marshall. I've enjoyed your questions, enjoyed talking to the folks. So thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.